Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Americans are becoming more accustomed to and say they prefer fresh, organic, and locally produced foods in the marketplace. But Penn State Berks Associate Professor of History Michelle Mart contends the public is being misled and developing poor dietary habits due to the practices and influences of the food industry. She's currently researching the effect and cultural attitudes about the environment and the food industry in the United States and how and what Americans eat. Joining us is Dr. Michelle Mart, Associate Professor of History at Penn State Berks and author of the book Pesticides, A Love Story, America's Enduring Embrace of Dangerous Chemicals. Dr. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me this morning. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, the, the, the book, Pesticides, a Love Story, America's Enduring Embrace of Dangerous Chemicals. Uh, I want to talk mostly about um, you know your current research, but I want to go back to the book. Why do you say that America is in love with pesticides? Well, I chose the metaphor love story because uh, I wanted to convey something about the ongoing uh, connection to pesticides and the idea that sometimes uh, our feelings are not always rational, just as when we're in love, our feelings are not rational when we're in love. Uh, when it comes to environmental expectations and attitudes, our feelings are not always uh, rational. Regarding pesticides, I talk about a love story because uh, I found looking at attitudes over several decades that Americans continued to um, embrace the use of pesticides, expect the use of pesticides, even when there were examples of um, environmental disasters or rising costs or declining effectiveness. And that seemed to me to raise a lot of questions about why were Americans continuing to embrace pesticide use, even when uh, there seemed to be a lot of uh, rational reasons to question their use. And yeah. that's why I use the, the metaphor of a love story. So what did you conclude then of why Americans do have this love story, as you say, or are willing to look the other way or are were willing to look the other way? Um, I think there are a couple of key ways to understand this. One is the expectation that uh, we continue to rely on that human beings, modern American human beings, are able to manipulate and control our environment, and that includes our food system. And pesticides seem to be uh, a perfect vehicle to control and manipulate the environment. That's one assumption. Another assumption is that most of us, uh, most of the time, think in the short term rather than the long term, and we're thinking about what will be the immediate yield from a particular acre of land as opposed to thinking about the long-term consequences to that land or to people's health. Um, another reason that I think people continue to cling to pesticides is that we often think in terms of our individual interests, not our collective uh, social interests or environmental interests. 
Um, and, and the last big area or reason that I focused on is the idea that um, we often make decisions based on what we see has already happened as, uh, as opposed to using precaution and trying to prevent something from happening in the future. So how did your conclusions about the use of pesticides lead to your current research on the effects of large-scale industrial agriculture on American health and culture? Um, well, I think one of the biggest issues today when we try to understand the food system is to think about how um, we look at the way we produce food in an industrial framework, and pesticides are a key part of that industrial framework. And we assume that if we put certain inputs on the land and that if we get a particular predictable chemical from a factory, um, that we will get a predictable result. And, that, and that's how we frame the way we produce food. So when I was looking at pesticide use over several decades, one of the, the key motivations uh, that people continued to use pesticide is they thought that they would uh, grow more food. And... Uh, so I became more interested in how we think of food. Um, do we see food as just an industrial output? Do we think about the cultural meaning of food? Do we think about um, how food might connect us to the natural world and the environment? Um, and all of these questions started to swirl around in my head, and I wanted to focus more specifically on food and our attitudes towards food and uh, questions it raises about uh, climate change, about uh, our short-term and our long-term health, uh, about the loss of jobs um, on, from the land, um, about the shrinking rural communities, um, and about our... Um, more and more tenuous connection to the natural world. Let me uh, just kind of push back against that for a moment. Sure. Does the average American think that way? I mean, think. And you said yourself that we tend to think short term rather than what it looks like in the long term. But, you know, I'm just picturing the average American family going to the grocery store, buying what they like to eat, what tastes good to them, uh, what the kids will eat. And, you know, that that's kind of what they're basing their decisions on. Now, granted, we know Americans are much more health conscious today, so that does enter into their thinking. So I guess my question is, going back to your what you had said earlier about thinking short term versus long term, isn't it just one of those things where Americans look at it as, this is one of the things we need to survive, food, so let's get the best food, the ones that we enjoy the most. Okay, that's a, that's a fantastic way to, to um, frame, frame the dilemma here, because I think um, part of the problem is that we have the illusion that when we all go to the grocery store, we have free choice and we can just choose whatever meets our needs and desires and 
um, what we want to spend. And I think we need to push back on that because our uh, uh, food choices are very constrained. They are not um, as free as we have the illusion of them being. So, for example, when we go to a modern American grocery store, many of the products that we see in that grocery store are products as opposed to food items, and they have been highly processed. Many of them have numerous ingredients and chemicals in them. They have extra sweeteners. They have a lot of for example, uh, corn syrup, um, which, which increases our sugar intake. Um, and the numbers of <clears throat> unprocessed, more natural foods are actually quite small relative to the other choices out there. Uh, another way of understanding constrained food choice is when we think about how the number of uh, uh, foods and seeds have declined uh, precipitously over several decades. So uh, now in the early 21st century, the majority of food calories consumed across the uh, world come from seven different um, types of food. Uh, they come from uh, wheat, they come from rice, they come from sorghum, they come from soybeans. There, there are seven main grains, uh, six plus potatoes, that account for most of the food consumed. And of those types of grains, um, the variety among them has, has plummeted. So we really have much less variety and choice than we think we do. Well, what, can I interrupt for just one second? Sure. When, when you say it's plummeted, give me some examples. Well, um, there used to be many more varieties of rice grown throughout the world. There used to be many more varieties of wheat or uh, potatoes grown. Um, Cultures in South America, for example, used to have numerous varieties of potatoes. Uh, now, with global agriculture, the number of potatoes that are uh, uh, grown and shipped around the world are very few in, in the varieties. And so we're losing a lot of genetic diversity in our uh, uh, food supply. Uh, we're losing a lot of choice. Um, and, of course, when you have a, a diversity of food, then you have a food system that is more resilient to uh, possible diseases or pests or drought because one variety might be more, um, uh, might be able to withstand a drought better than another variety, for mm. example, or one variety might be able to withstand um, a bacteria or a fungus better than another variety. And when you uh, shrink the variety of foodstuffs, you open up um, 
people to the danger of having a, a massive uh, food crisis. Um, if we think back, the, the most famous food crisis on this scale in uh, human history was the mid-19th century Irish potato mm-hmm. famine. Um, and part of the problem with that was that the variety of potatoes grown in Ireland um, was so limited that they were all vulnerable uh, to the same disease. Um, going, going back to the question you raised tied to uh, choice mm-hmm. and cost, yes. mm-hmm. I think is really important, if I can touch back on sure. that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we sometimes have a misunderstanding of how cost and choice uh, works together. We think of our food as pretty cheap. And overall, it, it, it does seem to be very inexpensive. And Americans spend much less of their uh, dollars on food than any other Western country. So other Western countries spend a much higher percentage of their income on food. We spend a much lower percentage of our income on food. And we have the assumption and expectation that we have very inexpensive food. But what I would throw out there, and many, many people have uh, written about the hidden costs of food, uh, what scholars refer to or um, critics refer to as the externalities. So when we are looking at cheap food, we're not necessarily looking at the high cost of obtaining the oil that we need to grow that food or that we use to grow that food. Uh, We're not necessarily looking at the damage to uh, the earth from um, uh, draining the soil and uh, using too many chemicals on it so that the soil is uh, no longer healthy, and we have more um, um, uh, uh, dried out soil, or we have more erosion, uh, or we have soil that becomes more sterile, and you have to create new fields. So, what you're talking about is looking short term again. It is. It is. And 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 the other the other big costs that, of course, we're not looking at today are the health costs. Uh, we're not looking at the cost of uh, the uh, huge number of people who are battling obesity. We're not looking at the cost of uh, people who are battling cancer. We're not looking at the cost of uh, increased diagnoses of uh, autism, ADHD, uh, depression. There are all kinds of correlations made now between what we eat and uh, what what um, the health consequences are of what we eat. I'm going to talk more about uh, your research in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Michelle Mart. She's an associate professor of history at Penn State Berks, 
author of the book Pesticides, A Love Story, America's Enduring Embrace of Dangerous Chemicals. We're talking about uh, her current research on, I guess a good way to describe it is why we eat what we do eat and the influences that uh, there are as to what is in our diet today. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. And on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. That's at Smart Talk WITF. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Dr. Mark, just want to follow up on uh, what you were talking about with cost and uh, money when it comes to our food supply. And then I do want to go on to some other parts of, uh, of your research. But uh, you have said that uh, actually, and you said it in so many words uh, before we went away to the break, uh, that really our food should be more expensive when you take all those things, all those factors into account, like fuel and uh, the long-term health effects. But, you know, there are many people who would look at this and say, you know, this is food is one of those things we must have. It is an essential. Uh, Yes, it can be looked at as a commodity, but it is one of those things that uh, people must be able to afford because they need it. And we know that there are so many people across this country uh, and around the world who can't get enough food because they don't have enough money. Uh, This is an important question, and this is a dilemma that arises when someone like me or any other commentator uh, uh, talks about the, the or raises the question that our food should be reflect the true costs more, which means it would need to be more expensive. Of course, access to food is a necessity, and there's no question about it, and people need fair access to food. But what I also want to emphasize is that we need fair access to good quality food, and that we need to think about um, how food fits into our whole society. So, for example, one of the other reasons that uh, food is less expensive, it seems to us, in our country, uh, another externalized cost is the labor that goes into our food. So the, the people who feed us, the people who make the food system run, many of them are highly exploited. And they are paid very little. They have terrible conditions. Um, When they are having to use a lot of chemicals, many of them do not have safety equipment or any protections. Um, They have a transient life. Their children are exposed to dangerous chemicals. There are all kinds of exploitations that go into that. So those are types of questions that that we need to push ourselves to ask when we're talking about the cost of food. And um, I think that we need to understand that this is not a choice between people starving and um, not having enough food for the general population 
or improving our food system. Mm. I think that there are many demonstrable examples of how uh, pockets and communities where our food system has been improved and people are working on that right now, um, but that food remains affordable and um, that we're also treating people who grow our food better um, and and the cost is still um, affordable and accessible for people. Mm-hmm. Before we take a, a, a few phone calls here, I wanted to touch on a little more of your research. You're finding that people's diets are shaped in large part by government food policies, nutritional guidelines, and school lunch programs, which may surprise a lot of people, but touch on those three if you would. Uh, well, what I what I think is really interesting is the role that uh, government has uh, played in setting out for us what we should be eating, and and that overlaps with the school lunch programs because, of course, those are government programs. Um, what I find interesting is that the government recommendations for uh, what we eat are incredibly well-intentioned, but I, I think they have a paradoxical impact because they make us think about food only in terms of nutrients and little components of food as opposed to the whole food itself. So throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, um, government guidelines talk about how many um, grams of of protein or fat or carbohydrates the average American needs per day or the uh, child in a school lunch should have. And um, in the middle of the 20th century, they used these nutrient guidelines to, to classify school lunches. And so there were type A school lunches and type B school lunches and type C school lunches, which would classify them all based on nutrients. Um, but our food is more than just um, a collection of nutrients. Otherwise, we could all just eat some vitamin pills from a laboratory uh, and and think that we're getting the food we need. And I, I, I think any logical understanding uh, of food would tell us that's not true. Yeah, dinner would not be uh, quite as enjoyable if that was the case. <laughs> it, it would not. It would be like we were in a Star Trek episode <laughs> Exactly. All right, let's take a few phone calls. Uh, Christine is in Newburgh. Christine, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I would just like to know if the guest, if her research has dug up anything regarding use of pesticides and tied to autoimmune disorders such as type 1 diabetes and MS. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Um, That's a really important question. Um, I should say at the outset, I am a cultural historian, not a biochemist by any means. Uh, but I have certainly been following and uh, reading about uh, the biological research that is going on now. 
um, there are a lot of correlations that more and more researchers are finding between um, autoimmune disorders, and in particular, a lot of researchers are looking at uh, endocrine disruptors, and many endocrine disruptors are also pesticides, and they have uh, found a lot of correlations not only between type um, uh, not, not only between diabetes, but also obesity, because the endocrine system, uh, which controls our our hormonal system, is our hormonal system, um, affects how we absorb food and digest food and uh, process food. Uh, there have also been a lot of correlations with. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, autism, uh, ADHD, uh, depression, and now there's a little, a little more research and studies about the uh, correlation between endocrine disruptors and food intolerances and digestive uh, diseases, uh, including things like celiac, but other types of food intolerances as well. Hmm. Okay, uh, let's take another phone call from Otto in Gettysburg. Otto, you're on the air. Yes, thank you very much. You're I welcome. appreciate your uh, guests' uh, uh, expertise in this area. I wanted to mention the name Rachel Carson, uh, the hero uh, that exposed the dangers of DDT. In particular, uh, I wanted to uh, ask your guests about uh, Rachel Carson's uh, phrase that every child has, quote, a sense of wonder. Every child is born with that. Uh, but the sense of wonder, which causes them to become very excited about the intricacies of nature, uh, needs to be watered. It needs to be cultured. And uh, I'm an environmental educator, so I've spent my life doing that. But uh, the the plain fact of the matter is that many children these days uh, have a real disconnect with nature. It's, you know, it's, they've been seduced by the modern world. They're connected to iPods, but not to nature. Thank you very much for your call, Otto. Um, Rachel Carson, I think, is one of the most important uh, figures in world history of the 20th century. And one of the reasons that she is so pivotal, pivotal is that she did remind us all, um, not just that children are born with a sense of uh, wonder, but that we all need to try to find again as adults our sense of wonder. Um, what I found over the past few years looking at pesticide use and attitudes about that and looking at food use is that um, I think we often devalue the sense of wonder because we are only looking at food production and control of the environment in narrow ways. So a sense of wonder is about a broad excitement and understanding and feeling at one with nature. But when we believe that we can control nature by spraying herbicides on a soybean field, 
then we are we believe we have mastery over nature and so we don't have a sense of wonder about what that means when we believe that the most important aspect of our food system is uh the yield per acre of wheat, we are not thinking about how food connects us to nature or stands for something greater. Uh, When we are measuring our school lunches by the ounces of meat that might be in that school lunch, then we're not thinking about the larger purpose of food and how it connects us to nature and connects us to each other. I want to mention something, just follow up on what you just said when you're talking about measuring wheat uh, yield per acre, for example. Um, You know, we hear this every day. We see it in the newspaper every day. We hear it on radio, TV, especially in areas of the country where agriculture, the agriculture industry is so important that the commodities are listed, that food the products you mention, the crops you mention, are listed as commodities. And this is how many people make their living. And, uh, you know, rather than thinking of it as you just described, they're looking at it as a product. This is how I support myself and my family. Um, they do. And, and um, I understand that rational impulse And I understand people's fear that if we stop seeing it in this way as a commodity, that maybe people will go bankrupt or we won't pay enough attention to yields and and, um, other questions that are related to that. But what I would throw out to you is an alternative way of looking at that. We can kind of shift that understanding. And that is that... um, The idea that our modern industrial food system is the best way to get the most food is not necessarily true. And and we have this assumption that if we start to dismantle the system, if we no longer are measuring our commodity output, that we won't make enough food. And there's a lot of uh, research, there's a lot of experimental work in regional agriculture that demonstrates that the output per acre of diverse small organic plots is sometimes much higher than the yield from industrial agricultural uh, plots. And I'll, I'll throw out two other ways to understand uh, the, the questions this raises. One, uh, we've spent most of uh, the past century researching and thinking about industrial agriculture. And the vast, vast majority of uh, research and investment has been in industrial systems and chemical systems. And there's very, very little comparative research in uh, more diverse, holistic ways of understanding agriculture and in organic uh, growing. Uh, and the other, the other uh, uh, 
observation I'll throw out there when we're thinking about uh, the value of the industrial agricultural system is that the crop loss to pests in the early 21st century is still about 30 to 40 percent. So our embrace of pesticides over a century or, or many decades has not eliminated crop loss to pests. Mm. We have a we had a couple of callers who wanted to actually they're anticipating questions I wanted to ask you as well uh, about the role of the Department of Agriculture and the effect it has on the food system as a whole. And then someone else followed up by asking, "What about government subsidies for the agriculture industry?" Uh, the the role of the USDA has very much been an embrace of the industrial chemical system. And, um, and, and when I assert this very strongly, I'm, I'm in no way uh, impugning the motives and the goals of people who work for the USDA and have made a career of doing that. I, I believe that they think they are trying to build the best agriculture system possible. Um, the problem has been that it is often a very narrow way of understanding uh, our agricultural system. And the USDA research really has cut off other uh, alternatives to our current system. And, and when we look at investment in types of research, that's the best example of showing how the USDA has favored over many decades um, uh, chemical agriculture and industrial agriculture. And uh, Scott, what was your second question? The, the second question from a listener was uh, government subsidies for the agriculture industry. Well, I think I think part of that is related to the USDA system in that uh, the USDA is really by putting all this money and effort into that research, that's a, a powerful subsidy. Um, the U.S. government access and subsidies to the petroleum industry is very, very important in understanding favoring industrial agriculture. Um, and when we think of petroleum use in the U.S., and this is a funny statistic because we often don't think about that. When we think about uh, climate change and damage from petroleum, we think about things like uh, the, the power plants and uh, looking at their um, output and changing emissions from cars, and those are all very important. But 50%, more than 50% of the U.S. petroleum use currently in the early 21st century is part of or somehow connected to industrial agriculture. Mm. Uh, you know, you've also said, and I, there was a quote here, that McDonald's food, or fast food in particular, is so cheap in part because of government subsidies, uh, that the government supports water rights for cattle, they look the other way when the feedlots don't regulate methane gas, and so on. All these factors combine to make McDonald's a cheaper option than organic, sustainably raised food. Over time, our bodies have adapted to eating this type of processed food. It's become interwoven into our way of life and incredibly hard to change. 
What do you mean by that? Well, I I think it is about uh, an economic system and expectation. It's interwoven into our lives economically, and it's interwoven into our lives culturally. Um, you know, we we love our traditional American hamburger and you know going off to McDonald's, um, and it's interwoven in our lives politically in terms of. Um, USDA uh, regulations and policies and um, the fact that the um, large food processors have a strong relationship with uh, the the federal government system, the regulations and um, uh, things like uh, not not um, not regulating the environmental impact of of cattle feedlots mm. and the methane that comes out of them. Dr. Martin, almost, I'm almost out of time. Uh, one final question. Sure. Are there two or three, maybe even small things that we can do to improve our diets and contribute to a, contribute to a more sustainable agriculture industry? Uh, there are many things, but I'll just give you two or three. Okay. <laughs> um, the the first thing is that I I encourage everyone to think about these questions in your own life. There's no one right answer for everyone, but I think it is really important to ask yourself what choices you want to make about food. And I think one of the most important ways that you can um, uh, think about this is try to find local sources of food. Go to farmer's markets and talk to the farmers who are there. Talk to the people who actually spend their lives growing food for other people. And once you start to get to know them as people and you understand that um, the food is part of your community, then I think that you can make a commitment to strengthening your community as well as getting better food and helping out your neighbors. Um, And the other thing that I I think that people can do – kind of immediately is when you go to a regular grocery store, not just a farmer's market, think about the choices you're making. Are you getting foods that are um, highly processed? Are you getting foods that are as close to their natural state as possible? Are you getting more fresh food than processed food? I mean, there are all kinds of questions that you can ask yourself. And as I say, I I don't think there's one right answer, but I think we can all start to engage in this and question the status quo, question the way our food system currently uh, has has, uh, evolved and whether or not we can make it better. I think we can make it better. Dr. Michelle Martin is an associate professor of history at Penn State Berks, author of the book Pesticides, A Love Story, America's Enduring Embrace of Dangerous Chemicals. Dr. Martin, very interesting. Thank you very much for being with us today. 
Thank you for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Goodwill Industries, including Goodwill Keystone Area, has a mission to support persons with disabilities and other barriers to independence. Goodwill Keystone Area has a new program called Good Careers Start Here that is designed to assist those who have worked at or with Goodwill and their families with getting a higher education and also providing employers with skilled workers. To tell us more about this program, Jennifer Diaz, Senior Director of Resource Development with Goodwill Keystone Area. Ms. Diaz, welcome to the program. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, tell us about the, the genesis of the Good Career Start Here program. How'd this come about? Well, the idea for the program actually came from a conversation between our CEO, Ron Cradifil, and our Executive Vice President, John McHenry. And they were kind of looking out over the landscape of our organization and seeing the 800-plus entry-level workers that we employ who are making about 8 or $9 an hour. And despite the fact that these employees were learning the power of earning a paycheck and learning great job skills, um, the reality was that these 800 workers could only move into other entry-level jobs, none of which would pay enough to sustain a family or could move them out of poverty. And at the same time, there was this community conversation that was focusing on the fact that this former golden ticket, which was the bachelor's degree, was no longer guaranteeing anybody a job. And there was this influx of what they were calling middle skill jobs, jobs that required a short or long-term certificate or an associate degree, and they were in high demand in the community. They paid a high wage, um, jobs in healthcare, manufacturing, construction, transportation. And so this idea kind of evolved from that conversation about how our goodwill could provide funding for low-income goodwill employees and their immediate family members to get a short or long-term certificate or an associate's degree in one of these high-demand careers. And so they pitched the idea to our board, and our board really felt like this was a great expansion of our mission. And so the decision was made to launch the Good Careers Start Here program. So there are two different things at work here. One is that the people that uh, work at or with Goodwill and and their families, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but uh, that these people were in need of something more, and that the workplace that there were a lot of employers out there. I mean, we just had a program a few weeks ago talking about uh, how there was such a, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know if a lack of or we're not getting as many skilled workers as quickly as what we need. There are more jobs than there are workers out there. So really it's to fill two different kind of needs. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, What kind of skilled workers are we talking about? Uh, Some of the programs that we have our participants enrolled in right now, CDLA, cardio technician, physical therapy, certified nursing aid, healthcare, medical assistant, dental assistant, construction is a huge field right now with a massive shortage as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So what are some of the roadblocks that, uh, uh, and I I was about to say your clients, but it's not your clients, your workers, the people who uh, have worked with Goodwill and their families, what are some of the roadblocks that they face? Right. Well, absolutely. Going back to school is a daunting task for anybody. And when you think about some of our employees who have been you know, working for 10 to 15 years with a desire to go back to school, but just don't know where to begin and don't have the funding to do that. So obviously, funding is a huge barrier to preventing people to getting their certification. So we can provide that. Other huge barriers that we've identified, uh, transportation is a huge issue. And so we actually provide funding for transportation costs, gas reimbursement, uh, cabs, Uber, bus fares. We actually had a participant 
happened recently who had a car uh, that wasn't functioning, didn't make sense to fix it. So we had a, a local uh, car dealer that stepped up and said, hey, we'll, we'll provide half the car, you provide the other half. And that participant is actually going to a financial literacy training to make sure she can maintain the upkeep of that car. Childcare is a huge issue. So again, providing funding for people to be able to do that as they are in classes, as they attend our classes. Uh, internet access. So another piece of our program is we provide laptops, we provide printers, we provide Wi-Fi if you need it. Mm-hmm. Child care really sticks out to me because I've heard so many people over the years, and this goes back to the balance in life right. of work, school, uh, family, all those things. And when a disability may be part of uh, the a part of that dynamic, or uh, a, a, a low income part of that dynamic, it makes it even more of a hurdle. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're living paycheck to paycheck, and then you're adding this school piece on top of everything else, and it's hard to manage all the pieces. So. The linchpin that we kind of consider the linchpin of our program is what's called the career navigator. And this is a full-time staff person who walks with you from the moment you enter the program all the way to the other side of you getting your your certification and getting employed in the community. And they are your mentor. They're your counselor, your cheerleader, the shoulder to cry on. They're the person that when things are kind of breaking down, when you have all these balls in the air that you're juggling, that they walk in and say, okay, what piece do we need to work on here? Childcare is an issue. Okay, what, what can we do to put that? In place to make sure that's not a barrier to you being successful and going back to school. So who are we talking about? Who are the people that you're working with? Well, most interestingly, in the beginning of our program, mostly single moms with children. Um, now, as we've gotten, we've broadened our, our program, we're seeing more men come into the program. But interestingly, in the beginning, it was very much single moms and children. And you can imagine the level of barriers that that adds to the to the piece. Now, are these uh, these persons with disabilities? Some have disabilities, uh, some, just employees, entry-level employees at Goodwill. See, now this is something that I, I wanted to make sure that uh, we pointed out right. in the program is that there probably are many people who think about Goodwill and think that it's only people, only persons with disabilities that you're working with. Right. But as my introduction said, which was taken directly from your mission statement, that people who are facing barriers to independence. So that could be income. What else? Right. Well, interesting. I just I spoke at a, a master's level social work class and a fifth grade class this week, and I asked the question, <laughs> the same question to both groups. What do you think of when you think of goodwill? And they all had the same response, retail stores. We think about used goods. And that's very much a part of what we do. Both the masters and the fifth grade. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I, it was very, very funny, and, 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 but very common. That yeah. What people don't realize is that goodwill uses the profits from our retail stores to fund our services. And our services, as you've just mentioned, are to provide... Um, opportunities for people with disabilities and barriers to go back to work. And our retail stores really provide a great entry-level opportunity to do that. So they're on the retail floor, they're sorting, they're collecting donations. But from there, then you really don't have access to move up the career ladder. So that's why this program is so important. We're giving you now the education to move you up the career ladder. Why goodwill? Well, I think that's our mission. I mean, our, our mission, as we've just spoken about, was is to make sure that people have access to jobs and and get the skills that they need to be successful in a career. But Goodwill didn't have that next rung in the ladder, I think, that that helped them move beyond the entry level into a family-sustaining career. It just naturally seemed a part of our mission to do that. You just used the word career, 
And uh, as I was reading over the material, talking about uh, talking about the Good Career Start Here program, uh, I don't see the word job used very often. And uh, I, I think there's probably, if I read between the lines, there's a reason for that. Well, I think that's what we're looking to do. We want people to be in a lifelong career that they're passionate about. It's not just about earning a paycheck. Certainly that's important. But I think what we're doing here, and one of the great features of our program, we have an eight-week prep course that prepares you to go back to school that intentionally looks at what are your skills? What are your passions? What are your dreams? What do you want to do for the rest of your life that you are passionate about and not only are going to be able to provide for your family, but that you're going to enjoy and be just this valuable member of the community? Mm. Uh, So uh, who are some of the employers? And by who, I don't mean uh, specific names of employers, but some of the industries that uh, you've worked with. Uh, The hospital industry is is huge construction. In fact, we are meeting next week with the Associated Builders and Contractors Organization because recently a group of contractors just went up to the Capitol to have a conversation with the legislators because there's this massive this shortage. We have this baby boomer generation that has is going to be retiring and we don't have the skilled labor to move into that place. So they were having the conversation, what can we do to make sure that we have the labor that we need? And so we're going in next week to say, hey, we have this great program. How can we partner with you in the community to make sure that you have the individuals that you need to um, fill out your your payroll and your staff. As I mentioned just a few weeks ago, we uh, focused on the lack of skilled workers and the shortage of skilled workers out there. A statistic that came out of that is that the average age of skilled workers today is 55. The right. baby boomers you're talking about, uh, they're only going to be in the workforce. Of course, who knows what retirement age is nowadays, sure. but uh, may only be in the workforce for another 10, 12 years. Right, right. And, and we can't wait 10, 12 years to address the issue. We need to start working on it now. And one of the stats that just came out, there was a statewide report that said there's going to be at least 1 million skilled workers needed in Pennsylvania through 2024. Mm. Which is staggering. We put a lot of emphasis on people going to college. Now, that is an aspect of this. Right. Whether it's college or whether it's, you know, getting a certificate, uh, you know, some kind of technical school or something like that. Uh, But that is one of the ironies here is that we encourage K through 12 students to be looking for those four-year bachelor degrees. And now we have the shortage of skilled workers. Right. Absolutely. And that was the conversation. It was considered kind of this golden ticket. You get your four-year degree and you're guaranteed a job, and that just didn't pan out. And so now what we're seeing is there is just this influx of these middle-skill jobs that are high-paying, they're high-demand, and we just need people to, to get the training to do it. Uh, I want to thank you very much for being on with us today and uh, talking about the program. Uh, Someone listening today who, because I did mention earlier, and I'm not going to have a whole lot of time to talk about it, but family members, for those who have worked at or with uh, Goodwill as well, how can someone about 15 seconds or less get in touch with uh, Goodwill if they'd like to uh, participate? Uh, Yourgoodwill.org is the best way to access it. Well, that was 15 seconds or less. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank uh, Jennifer Diaz, Senior Div- uh, Director of Resource Development, Goodwill Keystone Area. Jennifer, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to talk about Easter meals, Passover meals, also about uh, a group of parents who want to succeed, secede from their school district. <laughs> 